You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Good morning. Like Bevan said, my name is Elliot, and um, today we are going to continue this series where we've been looking at the um, impact of the Christian movement throughout history and the difference that Jesus has brought in our world. And as we've talked about this um, topic, there's been three questions that we've seen that um, followers of Jesus has been asking through the centuries, and it's really put them in a position to um, bring good into the world and start to live out the way that God wants them to. And the three questions are, am I thinking in line with the Bible? Am I applying the Bible to daily life? And where is an opportunity for me to live out my faith? And as Christians have asked these three questions and considered them, they've been part of the greatest force for good that this world has ever known. And for you and me in our present day, we have the opportunity in the situations that we find ourselves in, the circumstances we're living among, we have an opportunity to ask these same questions. And as we do this, we're going to be standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And then we also have the opportunity to lay a foundation for those who will come after us as we ask these questions and consider, am I thinking in line with the Bible? Am I taking what I'm learning and I'm actually putting it into practice? And then Given the situation that I find myself in, am I living out my faith the way that God wants me to? And today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to look at one of the activities of Jesus' followers that sparked his movement to spread around the world. And we're going to be talking about the impact of global missions. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it's a passage known as the Great Commission. Jesus has already died. He's come back to life. He's getting ready to return to heaven. He gathers his followers together, and when he gathers them together, this is what he tells them. He says, Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So he gets them together, and he, he explains to them, Hey, guys, I'm, I'm not going to be here, so now I'm giving you the mission. And what a disciple is, a disciple is a follower of Jesus. So when he leaves this earth, what he says to his followers is he says, I want you to continue in the work that I've been doing. I want you to go. And I don't want you to exclude anyone. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. So anywhere in the world where there are people, I want you to go there and I want you to tell them the good news about what I've done. And then I want you to help them in a process of learning to obey everything that the Bible says to do to think in line with it, to apply it, to live it out in the situations they find themselves in. So at the end of his time, he gives his marching orders to his followers. And we as the church today, we understand these are still the marching orders. And as you study them, what you find again and again throughout history is people took this instruction seriously and they went and did it. And one of the people that I want to talk about is I want to talk about everybody's favorite Irish saint, St. Patrick. St. Patrick is one of the individuals that did this. Now, St. Patrick is famous because every March 17th, you wear green so that people don't pinch you, and you put you know, green food coloring in your favorite beverage of choice, and you, I guess the most Irish thing you can do is cook corned beef and cabbage, I guess. I don't know. Some, somebody who has Irish descendants told me that's not Irish at all. But we do this, and we remember St. Patrick. But do you really know the man's story? It turns out... Patrick is not an Irishman at all. He actually lived in Britain in the 4th century, which is part of the Roman Empire. At 16 years old, his, the village that he was living in, it was attacked and raided by pirates. He was taken as a captive. He was kidnapped, taken across the Irish Sea to Ireland. 
the Irish people at that period of time when he was um, captured and enslaved, the Irish people were known as a barbarian people. He was put to work for a Druid chief, taking care of the sheep for those people. So he goes to work for this Druid chief. The people um, of Ireland, they were highly superstitious. They engaged in all kinds of barbaric activities. They even practiced human sacrifice. So that's the environment. He's kidnapped and enslaved and taken to Ireland to be a part of these people. So he's there for six years. After six years, he's able to escape, crosses back over the sea, returns to his homeland. And what do you expect would happen if you were kidnapped and enslaved by barbarians? Well, you would expect bitterness. You would expect hatred, possibly a desire to get revenge. But that's not what you find in the story of St. Patrick. Patrick was moved by two things. First thing he was moved by, he was moved by the fact that Jesus gave his life to save a lost and broken world. And he was also moved by the reality that if people don't receive forgiveness from Jesus, they'll spend eternity in hell. So what he decided to do, instead of getting bitter or angry or seeking revenge, he decided to go back to the same people that kidnapped him and enslaved him and mistreated him for all those years to go back in order to tell them about Jesus. And as you study through the history, you find that he baptized thousands of people, he helped establish many churches, and over time, the Irish became known as a Christian people. And his impact was so profound that when the Roman Empire eventually fell in the 5th century, and the, the, the pagan barbarian tribes began to take over Europe, and it looked like Christianity was going to be ended, and kind of this paganism and chaos was spreading across Europe, as that's going on, Ireland actually becomes the sending station of missionaries to go from Ireland back into Europe to spread Christianity. And if scholars have studied the impact of St. Patrick in that period of time, it's led some scholars to make the claim that Ireland saved civilization. And they trace it back to St. Patrick. He doesn't get bitter about how people treated him. He views people the way that God views them, and he's moved by God's love for them, so he gives his life, he spends his life going and living among people so that they can come to know Jesus. It's amazing. As you study the story, there are parts of his story that are exaggerated. They talk about how he chased all the snakes out of Ireland, but there are no snakes in Ireland. So there's parts of his story that are exaggerated and twisted. But his desire to see people follow Jesus and the impact he had is undeniable. He went and lived among them, and he gave his life so that they could come to know Jesus. Now, when we talk about this topic of global missions, one thing that's helpful for us to do as we consider it is instead of looking at anecdotes, we need to look at the aggregate. Instead of looking at anecdotes, which are just standalone stories and coming to a conclusion about the whole, we need to look at the aggregate. What's the big picture? Because while you can look at St. Patrick's story, and everybody's going to hear that story and say, yeah, that's great, that's amazing, there are other stories about what Christian missionaries have done that aren't so amazing. We've got a clip of one of those. So let's check out this clip real quick. The ancient Hawaiian sport of surfing can be traced back as far as 1,000 years ago. As men, women, children, and even Hawaii's great king Kamehameha enjoyed the thrill of riding waves. In the earliest description of the sport by a visiting European, Captain James Cook observed upon watching an Hawaiian surf rider in the year of 1777. 
I could not help concluding that this man felt the most supreme pleasure while he was being driven on so fast and so smoothly by the sea. Then in the 1800s, the waves fell flat with the arrival of the Calvinist missionaries. Shocked and outraged by the state of undress and the easy mixing of the sexes that surfing fostered, the missionaries banned the sport. When I told my kids about that, their, uh, their first question was, why? Why would they do that? So, you know, at, this, at one time, you have stories like St. Patrick. On the other hand, you've got stories of not just Christians outlawing surfing. There's stories of Christian missionaries doing horrendous things, things that you look at and you say, that's, that's wrong. They shouldn't have done that. That's, you actually call it sin. You say they were in the wrong. They shouldn't have treated people that way. They shouldn't have done that. But if we're just looking at the anecdotes, then what we're doing is we're jumping to conclusions just based on one-off story. So what you need to do is you need to step back and consider, okay, well, what's the big picture? That's something that uh, one researcher set about to do. The guy's name is Robert Woodbury. He's currently a professor at Baylor. And what he did when he started his research several years ago is he explored if global missionary efforts have had a measurable positive impact on the world. And he set about to look at the aggregate. And his Research has began to transform how social scientists and economists think about Christian missionaries and human flourishing. And as he got started, he received a lot of opposition because his kind of his claim or the thing that he's researching undermines a lot of the assumptions that we have about the social sciences and also economics and what's going to lead to human flourishing. So he's received a lot of opposition through the years, and he's also received a lot of opposition because people point to these anecdotes, these stories of, well, we can all agree that Christian missionaries did this in this setting and that was wrong, so it must all be bad. But because he's focused on the big picture and statistics, over time, along with a group of researchers, they were able to collect data on where Protestant Christian missionaries went in the past 200 years and evaluate the impact those missionaries had on a society. So what they would do is they would look at a geographic region. So I think we have a picture. This is some of the stuff that people actually inspired by his work looked at. So this is in southern Nigeria. And at the time, the British were the colonialists who colonized Nigeria at the time. And there's also part of the narrative where um, people say that Christian missionaries and the colonists, the colonizers, were one and the same. But as you study it, you find out that's not the case. A lot of time, these European nations that would go in and colonialize these other countries, they didn't want missionaries there because the missionaries were the ones who stood up and said, hey, you're exploiting the people. You're mistreating them. You shouldn't be doing this. And then they would send letters home to other people, and it would create outrage about what these people were doing. So these are not one and the same. So in this situation, the British government draws this line, and it's kind of an arbitrary line. There's no... On this map, there's no river there, there's no mountain range. So they just draw this line and they say, Christians are not allowed, Christian missionaries are not allowed north of this line. So you can operate in southern Nigeria, but you have to be south of this line. But this line, because it's just kind of arbitrarily drawn on a map in some room somewhere, it divides people groups. So here you have three different people groups. So over time, so this was drawn back in 1900, over time they're able to look and consider What are the measurable differences that indicate human flourishing between the people that live north of this line, where no Christian missionaries went, and then those who live south of this line, where the Christian missionaries went? Between 
three different people groups. So these are, you know, they can compare this data. They have really good samples. What they found in this study was they found greater life expectancy, greater purchasing power, increased education in the people that lived in the regions where Christian missionaries were allowed to go. Another paper that this researcher wrote on the same topic, this was published in the American Political Science Review. This is the conclusion they came to. They said this, conversionary Protestants were crucial in catalyzing, and were a crucial catalyst initiating the development and spread of religious liberty, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations, most colonial reforms, and the codification of legal protections for non-whites in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll notice that a lot of the things that we've talked about are on this list. And the research, what it indicates, what it points to, is as Christians have taken the Bible seriously and applied it, it has brought significant change in our world. Change that's measurable. You can sit down with hard data and statistics and say, yes, this is true, and the cause was the arrival of these Christians. Now, a key part of these conclusions is the first two words they say, conversionary Protestants. What that means is these are Bible-believing Christians who went to places to convert people. The word convert means you're trying to persuade people to change their religious beliefs. And that was why St. Patrick went. Just like St. Patrick, these people were convinced that Jesus was God in flesh who came to save the world from sin, so they went to tell people this message. They didn't go to bring about some social reform. They didn't go so that they could do some type of good works. They went to a location to tell the people about Jesus. And what happens in the wake of people hearing the good news and deciding to follow Jesus, what happens in the wake of the gospel is you see all these measurable indicators of human flourishing start to grow out of of the people group, the tribe, the neighborhood, the city, the community, the society. Those come in the wake. But the, the cause, the motivation for the people going was they went because they wanted the people all over the world to know just what Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. They wanted people to know the truth about who Jesus was. This is really fascinating stuff. And as you study the lives of the people who have taken Jesus' instruction to go seriously, you can study many people on this topic, as you study their lives, there's a few ideas that surface again and again. And I want to look at two of the things that motivated people to go And then I want to consider how does that apply to you and me in our context where we live today. The first thing you see in the lives of people who went is you see that they had clarity on the problem and the solution. They had clarity about what the biggest need was. They understood what the root problem behind what we see happening on the surface was. And they were also clear about what it would take to solve that problem. Romans 6.23 says this, says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What this is talking about is it's talking about the consequence and the, the problem and the solution. The consequence for sin is what this verse calls death. It's spiritual death. The problem is that people are spiritually dead. On the inside, we're separated from our creator. The one who created us gives us life. And because we're separated from him because of sin, that means we're separated from our source of life. And if we enter into eternity in a state of being spiritually dead on the inside, then that separation from our Creator, that's made permanent. 
And the term that the Bible uses to describe eternity without God is a term that refers to a real place, and it's the term hell, a very unpopular and disliked word in our society. But the Bible uses this word hell to describe permanent separation from God. And the Bible's picture of eternity without God is a picture of isolation, being totally alone, being tormented. It's the eternal absence of everything good that God has made. It's the eternal absence of joy, fun, pleasure, laughter. There's no love, no satisfaction, no achievement, no success, no peace. There's no rest. You read through what the Bible says about eternity without God, and it's a horrible, horrible picture. And this is the problem, like the verse says, for the wages of sin is death. But the solution is what Jesus did. The verse then shifts and says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus gave his life as a substitute for us so that we can be made alive on the inside. Instead of our physical death permanently separating us from God, because of Jesus, we can now be made alive on the inside here and now and then spend eternity with God forever. So the problem is this. The problem is because of sin, everyone is spiritually dead. The solution is Jesus came to give his life. As you look at people that have taken Jesus' instructions seriously and gone, they were very clear on what the problem was and the solution needed to fix it. The Apostle Paul is one individual who took Jesus seriously. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, he writes about this. And before he writes this, he's spent 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 4, and then the first part of 5, explaining the problem and the solution in detail. And then he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. Because he understands the problem and the solution, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So what's this, what's this worldly point of view that he's talking about? Well, a worldly point of view is when you categorize people based on the categories of this world. You know, in this world, we have all kinds of different labels that we apply to people. And then when we label people, we can kind of compartmentalize them and put them in a box and say, well, I've now figured out who they are and what's really going on and what the root problem is for them because I've now put this label on them. And so we just think about people based on the labels of the world. So we think about somebody simply in terms of what their occupation is what they do for a living. Or we think about somebody in terms of they're rich or they're poor or they're an addict, or we label them based on their political affiliation. They're a Democrat, they're a Republican, or, or where they come from. They're Chinese, they're Russian, or their ethnicity, they're black or they're white. But as followers of Jesus, if we have clear, clarity about what the problem is and what the solution is, then what that means for us is we no longer look at people based on these categories we realize there's a lot more going on. We're not just going to look at the surface. There's a lot more going on below the surface. And according to the Bible, an accurate perspective on other people is that without Jesus, they are spiritually dead and headed for the ultimate consequence of that reality. So that means they're, they're no longer the family member who drives you crazy. It's a person who is marching towards an eternity with God or an eternity separated from God. It's no longer the rich person who looks like they have it all figured out and has the life that you think would be comfortable and make you happy, 
or it's no longer the addict who can't get clean, or it's no longer the neighbor who annoys you and frustrates you, but here in front of you is an eternal being whose eternity hangs in the balance. That's an accurate perspective on people. And people who understand this and see people this way and are clear about what the problem is and what the solution is again and again, these people are motivated to take Jesus seriously and go and tell people. Martha Moore is a missionary in Europe, and she was part of Seabreeze back in the 90s. And then in 98, she moved um, to Europe to start the Connection campus ministry. They work on college campuses. They're They have uh, places in Germany now, and they're also in Amsterdam. They've worked in Spain and a few other countries throughout Europe. And the whole reason they exist is they go on these college campuses, and they are there to help students come to know who Jesus is and then train them how to follow him. Now, if you know your history about Europe, you'll know that about 500 years ago, Europe was really the center of Christian activity throughout the world. But over time, through a series of events and other things that have happened, now Europe is considered unchurched. They still have the cathedrals, they still have monuments to significant people throughout history, but as you go there and you interact with people, what you find is very few people know what the Bible has to say, and very few people know about Jesus and have decided to follow him. So now it's considered an unchurched place, a place where we need to now go and start fresh new work because of the condition that it's in. So for years, we've been supporting Martha. We support her financially, we support her with teams, and actually just recently this fall, we sent a team of six people to Amsterdam to help work with Martha, and when they were there, their college semester looks very similar to the way it does here in the U.S. in the fall they start. So this team, what they did is they went and they spread the word about different events, they helped organize things, they met with students, they shared their testimonies, what God's been doing in their lives, invited students to follow them, all to help generate momentum so that Martha and the other people that are there can, through the course of the year, build more momentum and advance the gospel in this area. And so we put together just a quick video of a few members of the team talking about the impact the trip had on them, specifically how operating an environment where the problem and the solution were very clear, and they were very clearly the motivation for why they did what they did, how that impacted them. So let's check out this video real quick. I think one of the things that I took away from it was that I could be sharing the gospel more. I could be more intentional in my day-to-day life um, and really looking for opportunities to be able to do that. I think it's easy to get caught up in our our day-to-day activities with the kids and our family and schooling and work and all of that kind of stuff. And just to be like, it's our jobs as Christians to be sharing the gospel, to be the light for Christ. And I think for me, I've really felt called to be intentional Um, in conversation with people, just being more interested in people, loving on people, even when it's not necessarily comfortable for me. I think a top takeaway was a phrase Martha used, just that we're never off, and just wanting to take that back to Huntington Beach and as we're just going through our normal lives, interacting with people on teams and neighbors and people out at the park, just having a missional mindset all the time and asking God for grace to, to have that perspective to see people the way he does. People are willing to listen more than you think. I think oftentimes I'm my own worst enemy and that's, oh, this is gonna be awkward to 
share my story, to share the good news of the gospel and Jesus. Going there and being like, this is what we're doing, task-oriented, and we're gonna go do it. You were kind of forced to do it, and in that, people were really willing to listen. Even when we were interrupting students on their laptop with their headphones in, they would take them out and they'd look at you and, and they gave you the time of day. I think that was the biggest takeaway is just, we just need to strike conversation up and not be afraid of it. And me personally, it was really challenging and, and, uh, and really assuring afterwards that, that I could do it and I need to continue to do it being here back at home. Another thing you see in the lives of the people who have taken Jesus seriously to go is, first of all, they're clear on the problem and the solution. The second thing is they're focused on and living for eternity. They're not just living for this life, for success, for achievement, for pleasure in this life. They're focused on and living for eternity. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 says this. It says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul, who wrote this, what he's talking about is he's saying, hey, the, the things that we experience in this life, even the hard things we experience as we take Jesus seriously, what it's doing is, is when we approach it the way God wants us to and do the things God wants us to do, we're actually storing up for ourselves treasures and rewards in heaven. That's why he says that these light and momentary troubles, they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's, there's, there's no comparison if you look at what we're going to go through in this life versus what we're going to get for eternity. So he says, we don't fix our eyes on what's going on around us. It's temporary. It's going to pass away. We fix our eyes on what's going to last. We fix our eyes on eternity. Now, for me, this has consistently been a challenge. But as I was growing up, I, um, I actually had a, a bit of a fear about eternity. I, I was like, I don't know if I really want to go there. My piano teacher, when I was growing up, I'd go over to her house for piano lessons. She collected precious moments, those little baby angel figurine things. And they were everywhere. They were on top of the piano. They were in a cabinet by the dining room table. They were on the counter. They were everywhere throughout her house. And as a young, energetic boy, I remember thinking, okay, if heaven is this place where we're just going to be on clouds wearing weird tunics and playing harps, it just kind of sounds terrible. And I hated piano lessons. So then the thought of heaven, it, 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 it didn't excite me. It didn't do anything for me. It was like, this is going to be lame. But then as I started to read the Bible for myself and get an accurate perspective of what the Bible says eternity is actually going to be like, I mean, think about it. The God who created this world this physical planet that we're currently on, the God who gave us our abilities and created things that are beautiful and good and bring us joy, that God is preparing eternity for us. So in heaven, in eternity, all the consequences and all the impacts of sin are going to be, God, are going to be gone. And we're going to be in a perfect relationship with this God who created us. That means heaven is going to be this amazing place where there's going to be learning and growth, and there's going to be fun and pleasure and adventure, and there's going to be work to do. But it's not the, not the troublesome, hard, difficult, grading work that we do on this planet. It's going to be work that gives us purpose and fills us with joy and satisfaction. Heaven is going to be amazing. It's going to far exceed anything good that we could experience in this life. So when you start to grasp this idea... Instead of this image of, man, it's going to be boring and it's going to be dull, suddenly you realize, whatever I experience in this life, 
it's going to pale in comparison to how amazing this place is that God has waiting for us. So just like Paul says, we fix our eyes not on what's going on around us, we fix our eyes on eternity, this amazing experience that awaits us in the future. In the late 1800s, the best cricket player in England was named C.T. Studd. Now, cricket's one of those sports that, as Americans, we just don't get it. At my kids' soccer practice every week, there's often a few men off in the corner of the field playing cricket. Sometimes I'll be standing there, I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to walk down there and just be like, could you explain it to me? I just don't get it. I don't get it. It takes days to play. I don't understand the scoring. I mean, it's, just, it's a sport that we don't understand. But it's helpful for us as Americans to remember it is still the second most popular sport in the world today. Cricket is still insanely big. So back in the late 1800s, there's a guy named C.T. Studd. He's considered the best player in England. At the time, he was playing for a college team, Cambridge. So he's playing in college. And Australia was the best cricket team in the world. So Australia is coming to England, and it's just going to be this massive match between two heavyweights. And when Australia comes after the trip and they get off the boat, they wanted to do a warm-up match to get ready to play the England team. So they asked Cambridge if they could play the college team, professional national team against a bunch of college kids. So the media said, don't do it. This makes no sense. The university is going to get embarrassed. This is not a good idea. But CT and two of his brothers are on the cricket team, They'd, they with their team decided, hey, we're going to take on the challenge. We're going to risk it. We're going to risk it and see what we can do. So they play against the best team in the world at the time, and they end up beating Australia. And what's amazing is then Australia goes on to beat England. So at that period of time, the Cambridge team, a bunch of college kids, appeared to be the best team in the world. The star of the match was C.T. Studd. So he's the star of the match. He becomes a household name. While in college, he goes on and he plays for the England team. I mean, just incredibly, incredibly impressive. But the end of his college career, a life of being a professional athlete and wealth and pleasure and fame, all this stuff awaits him. At the end of his college career, he decides to say no to cricket and everything that it would promise him and to move and go be a missionary among people that had never heard the good news about Jesus. Just for context, that would be like a Heisman Trophy-winning college quarterback who's getting ready to go number one in the NFL draft, saying no to the fame and the celebrity and all the power and everything that would go along with that, saying no to that, to go to an obscure place among an obscure people in order to tell them about Jesus. So he says no to all of that, and he moves overseas. He starts in China he goes to India, and then he spends the majority of his time in Africa, where he did some of his most significant work. But when he's in China, at the age of 26, his father had passed away, and so he got an inheritance, and the inheritance was the equivalent of $5.5 in today's dollars. So he gets this inheritance for $5.5 million, and right when he gets it, he decides, I'm going to give it all away. And he gives it away, and he gives it to some really interesting organizations, some organizations you might know about, Part of the money he gave to help start and fund the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Part of the money he gave to the Salvation Army's work in India. And part of it he gave to George Mueller's orphanage in England. And then the rest of it he spread out through several other evangelistic organizations. I mean, incredible faith and obedience that this guy displayed. He said this at one point in his life when he was giving a talk. He said, if you want me to give you a motto, here it is. In light of eternity, 
How important is what I'm doing? So he's saying, if you could see your life from heaven's perspective, what's going to matter in heaven? What are all the things that are going to count in eternity? What are all the things you're doing now that you're going to realize it was a complete waste of time? If you could see your life from the perspective of heaven, what are you doing now that's important? What am I doing now that's important in the light of eternity? That's what he's saying. And you look at the guy's life, and he lived this way. He understood 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He, he understood this, and he lived it out. So as you look at people's lives, you see they're clear on the problem and the solution, and then they're focused on and living for more than eternity. So now I want to ask a question for all of us, for you and me, that we need to wrestle with and answer. And here's the question I want us to wrestle with today. What's my gospel assignment? What's my gospel assignment? Not just, you know, what's, not, not what, what do you do for work? Not, you know, what's your title? You're a mom, you're a grandparent, you're an attorney, you're an accountant, you're an engineer. Not that. Not, but what's your gospel assignment? Again, Jesus said to his first followers, he said, Go. And as you study their lives, you realize that they all went. But where they went was very different. Some went to the neighborhoods and the cities they grew up in. Some went back to Jerusalem. Some went to new places and new countries. They all took them seriously, and they all went. And for us, we need to wrestle with this question, okay, so what about me? What's my gospel assignment? In Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, a church he started, he writes to resolve a conflict. And the conflict that's taking place in this church is an argument over who's more important, whose role is more important. Paul's the man who came and started the church. And then a man named Apollos came after Paul and helped grow the church and lived among the people. So they're arguing over who's more important, and Paul writes to give them some clarity. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. He says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Now, this passage to me has been a really helpful passage, and there's a lot that we could unpack here. We could unpack the whole comparison between what we do versus what God does and how he's the primary actor and the real change that needs to take place is ultimately God's responsibility. We could look at all that. But I want to highlight, as he's addressing this conflict over who's more important, Paul the church planter, or Apollos the man who came later and served the church, notice that he says, we're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. What he's saying is Paul and Apollos were both servants. If you gave them a title, their title would have been servant. But their task and their assignment was very different. Both of them were being obedient to their master, but what they were doing looked different. The, the where and the for how long the assignment was, it was different for both of them. Same title, servant, but different tasks given by their master. It's the same for you and me. If you're a follower of Jesus, your title is servant. So instead of living for yourself, your life becomes about living for God and what he wants. And we know one of the big things he wants is he wants all people to come to know him. That's why he said, go therefore and make disciples. He wants everybody to hear about him. That's such a huge task. So then the question is, okay, so I'm your servant. Specifically, what does that look like for me? What's the gospel assignment that you have for me? You know, for some of us, for most of us, actually, the task is going to be here in this city. 
For most of you sitting in this room, the gospel assignment God has for you is right here where you live. It's where you work. It's where you play. It's where your kids go to school. It's in the neighborhood that you're in. It's on the sports teams that your kids are on. It's right here in this city. It's not, the assignment isn't, okay, well, what do I do for work? The assignment is, where does God want me to live out my faith and tell people about him? It's a gospel assignment. For most of us, going means we go right here where we live. And as we go right here where we live, one of the things God wants us to do is he also wants us to be aware of what's happening around the world. So we pray for, we support God's work throughout this country, throughout this region, throughout the rest of the world. If like the Amsterdam team that we just watched a video on, if we have an opportunity to go and be a part of it and have our perspective challenged by living this out in another context, we go and we do that. But for most of us, our gospel assignment, when he says go, it means right here. There are some of you in this room today who your gospel assignment, the task God has for you, is going to be in another city. You know, earlier this summer, Jonathan Graham, he grew up here, was a part of this church. He moved to Reno to be a part of starting Pathfinder Church up in Reno. So for some of you in this room, the gospel assignment God has for you is actually to go to a new city and to participate in either an existing work or be a part of a new work that God's doing. And then there are some of you who, like Martha Moore, what God wants is God wants you to go to a new country. He wants you to go to a new people and a new place and tell them this good news about what Jesus has done. But again, all of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, your title is servant. Every servant asks, okay, what does my master want me to do? He's told us to go. So then the question is, okay, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to go and live out this assignment? So I've got a couple of next steps this morning. And the first one is to ask God this question. Ask God to clarify your assignment. I would spend some time going before God and ask God, God, would you clarify my assignment? Don't assume. Don't just assume. I've been here for 35 years. This must be it. Ask God. Ask God to clarify your assignment. If a servant goes to his master and asks for clarity, the master is going to give clarity. What I've found in my life is usually God clarifies my assignment one step at a time. He doesn't just give me the whole big picture because I think that would probably freak me out and overwhelm me. But one step at a time, he says, your assignment is this. But as I've gotten clear on my assignment, my intentionality has increased. Now it's not just I live in this random neighborhood among these random people, but it's I'm here because God wants me to help advance the message about Jesus. So the first next step is ask God to clarify your assignment. The second one is we have these quick tour of the Bible booklets outside on the patio. They're little booklets. They've got 44 readings in them, and they cover some of the main passages in the Bible. If you are going to do the things that we've talked about in this series, if you're going to live in line with the Bible, if you're going to apply the Bible to daily life, and if you're going to live out your faith, you need to regularly put yourself in a position where you hear God speak to you. So a great way to do that is to grab one of those booklets we've got out there on the patio, quick tour of the Bible, and then start a practice in your own life of positioning yourself to hear from God so he can clarify what your assignment is, make sure you're thinking in line with him on different topics, and then you can start to live out your faith. So I'd encourage you to grab one of those on your way out this morning. Let's close and let's pray, and then we'll sing our final song. God, I thank you for your kindness and in including us in the work that you're doing. I thank you that... Our lives don't have to just be a passing of time while we wait for eternity, but we can do stuff that's meaningful and impactful that will matter in eternity here and now. I thank you for the examples of the people that have gone before us who, 
who challenge us, who call us to sacrifice at greater levels and take bigger risks in order to be a part of what you're doing. I thank you for their examples and how we can benefit from them. And God, I pray that whether our assignment is here in this city and these people that we grew up with and that we live among, or if our assignment is in another place, I pray that you would make our assignment clear. We thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.